Access to Justice. I'm your host, Heather Malarick of Merrick Law. I'm joined today by my co-host, Evan Clark of Kahane Law. Hey, Evan, how are you doing? I'm good, Heather. It feels like it's been forever since we've done this because the last episode you and Kim did without me. And I don't know, when was the last time we did it before that? Like over a month or something. We've been on summer holidays. Uh-huh. We have. We have. It's been it's been nice out. I've been enjoying the the time away from the office and the camera, but it's nice to be back and see you as well. Yeah, I've had fun too. It's been a little bit too nice for many parts of the world, like the dead bodies showing up in Lake Mead and uh, the, the warning stones in Europe, like, hey, if you see me, start crying because you're going to die. Oh, dear. I've also been taking a break from the news, so I have not been listening to that, but that's not good. I guess we don't need more reminders of our uh, changing climate, hey? Well, I don't know, like, okay, so there, you know, we got a drought going on, but these rocks are from like the 1600s, so it's not the first time. Um, But yeah, drought hmm. time. Hmm. But it's been great in Edmonton. Sure has. It really has. Yeah. Uh, we're also joined today by Kim McDonald of McDonald Advisory. Kim's a financial advisor and insurance advisor with Raymond James Limited. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hi, Heather. I'm amazing. I have some special news. I think I know what it's going to be. What is it? I got my braces off after like two and a half, I think almost two and a half, closer to three years. So... I don't like I, I on our previous episodes when I watch them, I have such a hard time like keeping my mouth closed because my braces didn't fit in my mouth. So now I can just close my mouth without <laughs> trying. <laughs> uh, so do your teeth feel super smooth? Everybody keeps saying that. Yeah. Like it's just like it's a wiggly little situation in there now. It's uh, yeah, it's very it's very smooth. It's a great <laughs> Nice. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations. Is, is that a new printer? No, no. That's the braces is the only thing new around here. So okay. I just don't remember all. seeing that there before. Well, maybe listeners will have to comment if they can hear the lack of braces in Kim's in Kim's <laughs> voice. <laughs> yeah, you sound uh, smoother, Kim. Thank you, Evan. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, without further ado, I'm going to introduce today's special guest. Today, we're ta- we're going to take a bit of a deeper dive into collaborative law, and I'm very pleased to um, announce that we have Jeff Johnson here to join us. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Hi, Heather. I'm doing great. Thanks <laughs> for having me. This is this is exciting to be a part of. So, oh well, we're really excited to have you here. Um, I, I'll do a little intro of you first. You're a lawyer at Court uh, Stultz and Johnson in Sherwood Park. Um, I've also gleaned from your bio that you are an educator, a musician, a parent, and a martial artist. Um, and um, one thing that I picked out that I really liked about in your bio was you say that in your lawyer role, you help clients in crisis regain their footing and move forward. And I really, uh, I really liked that. So um, welcome. We're so excited to have you here and to hear how clients can um, move forward, I guess, smoothly um, and perhaps using the collaborative practice. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's, that's always been the most rewarding part of a file um, for me is when a client says, you know what, you helped me through this really difficult thing. And I like the way you, 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 
guided the process, right? And that's it's like, okay, that, that was now rewarding as opposed to, you know, here's an, an amount of money in a bank account or whatever it is that might be the practical end or the tangible end results. Oh. Yeah. Well, thank you for that introduction. Uh -huh. I was going to tell Kim, I went to the dentist this morning too. But... <laughs> I haven't gone in too, too long. I need to do it again. So I just recommend don't go because it just seems to be bad news. The older you get, the more the more it's bad news. <laughs> Jeff, you guys got to update your webpage. I just pulled it up and I just see Court and Stoltz. It is it is the worst webpage on the internet. So I, I'm going for the prize. I'm just going to keep it so, up there until we. That's not true. Your text is not blue on a gray background. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, I thought I was on my way to a prize. So thanks for ruining it. <laughs> <laughs> now I guess we just updated with actual information. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, the website is ancient and largely unhelpful. So um, I promise I'll update it sometime. Okay. That's my commitment to myself, I guess. <laughs> I'll record it now. Jeff, you have an interesting, as I recall, I don't recall exactly your background, but I remember when I first met you, your, your background was interesting in terms of like, like switching to fully, so fully focus on collaborative law. And I can't remember <laughs> what your evolution was in law, but am I, am I right? Is it a little bit interesting? Um, I may, I don't know. I don't know that I can speak to what's interesting about my background, but, um, maybe so, um, uh, my background in law, I don't, it might make my clients feel better. Um, or maybe not. I don't know. Um, I, I got into law fairly late. I think I went to law school as, you know, um, I guess I was, I was early thirties, which is a little later than the norm. I finished law school and said, I started practicing in a, in a very small firm, um, doing family law and quickly learned that I didn't want to do it. <laughs> um, in fact, I was quite convinced I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I left, um, and I went and to, did a bunch of other things for about five years, including, um, I worked in, in the restaurant industry, um, had a couple of experiments that basically crashed and burned, which was pretty fun. Um, continued continued on in a in a music career that had been going well before I ever went to law school um and then ended up doing regulatory law well I wasn't working as a lawyer I did regulatory advising at atco uh in environmental regulations and then got back into law um like I said five years later at uh at another firm here in Sherwood Park and ended up practicing mostly employment law for, you know, I don't know, four, four years or so, four or five years. And um, the suggestion was made to me that returning to family law, basically with the, with the sole purpose of practicing collaborative law, um, might be a good fit for me. And I think part of it was th that, that opportunity to work with a client and really dig into what it is that makes them tick, um, what it is that really matters to them, what those elements that have to get in, in place in order for them to get back up on their feet, um, that that opportunity to engage on that level is appealing to me. Um, I guess that means I'm, I'm not really, I don't know. I, I, I find uh, 
the black and white of litigation can be a little bit discouraging for myself and engaging a client on this kind of level um, and working with their their counterpart, the opposing party, as we like to say, um, in a way that doesn't dehumanize them. Um, and this is not, I'm not trying to jab at litigation, although I usually tell my clients I'm pretty biased. Um, but by being able to treat you know, my, my lawyer counterpart and my, you know, my, the other spouse or the other party on the, on the, on the other side of the table, um, with something other than, um, doubt and, um, I don't know, other negative things, more curiosity, I guess that was, that was appealing to me. So, well, so, um, Jeff, I can confirm Kim's suspicions. That was very interesting. And, um, I like your timing. I, maybe I'm biased because I graduated from law school at 36 or 35. So it's a good yeah. time. That's a good time to go to law school about 10 years <laughs> after everyone else. Yeah. School times, right? So, so um, before we get into talking more about collaborative law, uh, you got to tell us a little bit more about your music career. Oh, okay. Um, well, I, I think my music career can be summed up by saying I'm a terrible businessman when it comes to music. I think hopefully I'm doing better with law, but I might not be true. Um, I, I'm a, I, I grew up in a very musical house, um, started piano when I was three, um, moved on to uh, bass, electric bass, acoustic bass when I was a teenager. And kind of from there, I, I started playing professionally in Edmonton um, and around the province when I was 17, I think. And, and that was like the sole purpose of my life. It's just to play music and to specifically play the bass. Um, <clears throat> got my undergrad degree, um, taught, taught, uh, music, taught bass at Grant McEwen for about 15 years, um, or McEwen University as it's now called. Yeah. But back then it was a premier music, uh, college called Grant McEwen. Yeah, I think it was, it, it had a good reputation way back in the seventies and eighties. Grant McEwen was the place to study music in Canada. So, um, we had some unbelievable, um, uh, you know, Canadian celebrities that lived in your center here in Edmonton and, and they, they, they have quite a legacy. They're mostly gone now, unfortunately. So, yeah, I wasn't saying that tongue in cheek. I, you know, I remember I played uh, jazz band in high school and I remember, you know, seeing them at all the jazz festivals and stuff and trying to recruit musicians and stuff. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 It was, it was a big effort there. Um, and it was a good place to be. It was a good place to learn, good place to teach. So, um, but so music career wise, I, I, I did that. I, I taught, I played, uh, I played around town. I played around the province. I toured, um, toured Canada um, mostly doing jazz and other kind of freelance work is, you know, whatever, whatever walks through the door. <laughs> Want to play polkas? Okay. We'll play polkas. You know. <laughs> and I do classical music. Yeah, that's great. Or funk, jazz, rock, all that kind of stuff. So, um, it took a long time for me to identify myself as a lawyer, as opposed to a musician. And sometimes I kind of regret that change still. So. <laughs> you can be both, can't you? I hope so. I still play, still do some stuff. So Cut. not as much as I, as I might like, but, but it's all I have time for. <laughs> so. mm, nice. So, yeah. 
I think yeah. Evan also, well, I don't want to identify you as anything, Evan, that you're not comfortable with, but I think you also identify as a musician. Is that? <laughs> yeah, I do. Much less successful musician than Jeff. Um, and he's even saying he's not successful. So what does that say about my uh, music career? Terrible. But, you know, um, yeah, I've, I've played a lot of music over the years and, um, it's not about being a good business person in music, Jeff. It's in, it's almost impossible to make any kind of a decent living in music in Canada in general, and especially in Canada. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But I admire the guys who don't give up. They just keep on. Like, yeah. Like the guys like Sloan who are like in their fifties and they're just still hat, just playing those clubs all across Canada. Yeah. <laughs> must, must be tiring though. Must be yeah. tiring. What's your instrument, Evan? The main one's guitar, but I play uh, I play a little bit of bass. I'm sure it would not compare to your chops, but uh, it's a natural crossover from guitar. I play a little bit of drums as well, and and I sing. Excellent. It's good next year. So, in fact, the music that brings in and exits our podcast are from my uh, from my releases. So excellent. Yeah. What else? <laughs> Nobody knew that until this moment. I, d I didn't know that. And I just pay special attention now. So, <laughs> Okay. So, uh, yeah, that, that's, I think having a varied background helps in unexpected ways in law. Like there's no way you would just say, okay, traveling the country as a touring bassist and teaching at McEwen and doing all these things, you wouldn't just say, oh yeah, so obviously you'll be a good lawyer. But I don't, I do not doubt that your experiences from doing that, um, inform your practice of law in ways that you don't even notice. Yeah, yes. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to deny that. I think that all of the varied backgrounds that we all bring, um, give us an ability to relate to our clients in ways that's irreplaceable. Right. So nothing, nothing to knock, um, our, our, our younger colleagues who move straight through the system and get right into right into practice um, without any other kind of intervening careers or, or experiences. Um, but certainly as, as we get older and wiser, our ability to relate to our clients a little better is uh, irreplaceable. So, mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. So collaborative law is where you, is how they roped you back into family. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. I don't know what that says about your employment practices. Like, Hey, I, Jeff, I really think you would like collaborative family law. <laughs> Probably it stemmed from the, from the, uh, habit, I guess of, uh, no, I'm just, I was never much of a litigator. Um, never much, uh, very reticent to go to a courtroom. Um, I think I had the, the, I, I don't know if it was self-serving or client serving. I really don't know the answer to that. Uh, maybe it's both, but, um, I, I always felt that that going to court on the employment matters was kind of a failure to to adequately communicate with the other lawyer um, and to prepare my client for what to expect. So I think I just I I, I was showing that tendency already. Um, so collaborative law was obviously like natural. You don't go to court. It's like oh well, this is great practice for me. Um, so. Not that court isn't the right place for a lot of different things. And even in family law, there's some very valuable things that happen in Portman. Um, but, but for the, for the, um, I don't know if, I hope it doesn't sound insulting, but to say the average client, the average dispute here, 
um, or, or problem to solve the average dissolution of a relationship. So my clinical way of putting it, I guess, um, that courtroom experience, I, I didn't see it as being the best way to go. Huh. Yeah. So if you could, if you could eliminate all the communication failures out of the family law court system, it would be a much shorter <laughs> list at the courthouse. I think, I think it's safe oh, wow. to say that. Mm -hmm. I was going to comment yeah. that. Yeah. I think we've probably all had that experience of sitting in the courtroom and hearing a matter be called up before the judge and, one side doesn't know what the other side's position even is on the matter that's before the court. So when you, you know, mentioned that, like, if you, you felt like if you ended up in court, it was because of a failure to communicate. I think that's an extreme example, but there are a couple of examples like that happening most mornings in the courtroom. So um, maybe now's a good time to like back up a wee bit and um, talk about what the collaborative process is and how it's different from court or similar to court. Um, would you mind giving us a bit of a, a Coles notes on that, Jeff? I can, I can do my best and, and you'll, uh, you'll help me where I struggle. I'm, I'm sure I, where I hope, I mean, to break it down to its absolutely rudiment, rudimentary practical level, and, and and sometimes I describe this to to clients this way, and, and and sometimes not. But I mean, really, all collaborative law is that commitment not to go to court. So we won't use court. We'll do this by talking. But by taking court out of the equation, we force a different way of approaching the problem because we don't have a hammer anymore. We don't have the ability to say, at least if we're respecting the process, we don't have the ability to say, well fine. Well, if you don't like it, we'll find some other way to solve this problem, that being the judge. Um, so if we're taking away the hammer, we need to be able to, to keep the, the conversation going at the table um, in a way that moves us. So, and I think if I'm not completely misapprehending how the, how to, how the function of collaborative law evolved, um, all of the principles that we kind of hold front and foremost in collaborative law stem from that need to push it forward without our hammer of court. Um, and by, by that, I mean, we as collaborative lawyers um, will spend a lot of time talking about the difference between interest-based negotiation and positional ne negotiation. And, and I always find that this is the fundamental paradigm shift for a client to adopt, um, understand, and, and just change their entire way of thinking. And, you know, we're not always successful. Sometimes we never really truly get out of, out of um, what we're defining as a positional experience or a positional negotiation. But I always explain the difference to my clients or to anybody who's going to bother to listen to me talk um, that when we're talking about interests, we're really talking about, you know, what, why is way too simple a question? but it's the question. Uh, so what is motivating? What in your gut is making you feel that you need the, the thing or the arrangement or the whatever it is? There's something motivating you that has nothing to do with, with the money or the physical 
you know, presence of the house or whatever it is that we're talking about. Um, but there's a, there's, there's a motivation. And that's, yeah. what our, sorry, go ahead. You said, you mentioned like, besides the money, and I, I know that some people will want to say, no, but the money is the why. <laughs> they, they might. And I, and I always, so we, one of the things I learned in, 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 you know, through the training and through the course that we've done is, okay, sure, the money is the why, but why is the money the why, right? We have to go layers by layers by layers, right? I mean, yeah, uh -huh. I want the money. What do you mean? Uh -huh. What do you mean? What's my motivation? It's like, well, I mean, it's maybe it's a little bit glib or it's too simple, but, you know, what are you going to use the money for? What's the money going to do for you? You're just going to, are you just going to keep it? Are you, uh -huh. is that your retirement fund? Uh -huh. Is that it? Or financial security? Or is that your, right? Or do you just want to put the hurt on the other guy? It's possible. Um, but, but yeah, digging through the layers of that motivation. This is what I want. Well, what does it get for you? What, how is this making your life better? How is this changing your children's life? Whatever that is. Um, getting them to identify the, the reasons, the, those gut level motivators, um, as being what we're really talking about, as opposed to the end result. Um, so just exploring that, it's a chance to understand a client, right? That's always kind of, that's a, a, a an interesting part of the, of the process is, you know, having permission to be very curious and, and uh, find out, you know, what it is that, that really matters to, to people. I don't think you yeah. can overstate the importance of getting to the interest because as as a lawyer who does a lot of negotiation and family matters that and i'm not involved in in big c collaborative law it just doesn't really happen outside of that it does not really happen even though i'm aware of interest-based negotiation and i think it's the best way if it, it just it, it, the negotiation that i engage in tends to be very if it addresses it, those interests at all it tends to be just scratching the surface like very kind of shallow and you're just trying to help somebody kind of get this done. Um, you're not really going through that process of exploring deeply the motivations behind everything, which is what I think you need to do. If you're going to come up with a solution that addresses all those underlying issues. So, I mean, um, Heather is always trying to convert me to uh, big C collaborative law. I have yet to uh, commit to taking any courses or getting that designation, but um, that's one thing I see just right away from what you've said so far that people may not fully appreciate um, how different that is from the usual negotiation process. And, yeah. and I feel like it's just really hard to get there if you're not in the collaborative process because both lawyers have to be like committed to doing that and then do it. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting you say that. I mean, just, you know, the perspective of someone who doesn't practice the big C collaborative or formal collaborative, you know, that conclusion I think is quite fascinating. Um, and, and, you know, I've come that come to that conclusion myself that if we're not, if we don't have that, uh, maybe what the big question is, what's the difference between, a regular negotiation and a big C collaborative negotiation. Is it the is it the threat of court, or is it something else in the process? Mm. I, I think on its basic level, it's the threat of court. Mm. Uh, 
And, and what I've found is, I mean, it doesn't always happen, but it, it often does in a, in a negotiation that's intended to be an interest-based negotiation. We don't have that commitment not to use the court system. It's very, very easy just to fall back into uh, the positional negotiation, which is we have the authority, we have the facts, you're wrong if you don't agree with us. And if you don't give us what we demand, mm-hmm. we'll go to court and we'll win because you're wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Because we can just go there and get a better outcome. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then you do the, then you just do, you know, an economic analysis and you're like, well, yeah, you know, the risk cost, yeah. how is it going to look? Yeah. You, you know, is it worth it? Aren't you tired? <laughs> exactly right it'll cost this much to bring the application um and all the steps that are involved and this is this is the difference in our in our you know our end result positions um we're going to spend more going to court or we're going to spend less going to court than what what you might get on your average day and so let's just make that decision based on that um and it's effective we resolve files all the time that way. Um, I think our profession is largely built on that, and and it's not it's not wrong, um, but it leaves that it leaves that deeper underlying, you know, motivation on the table in in order like of the things that we can talk about, of the things that we can explore to get to a a result um, that makes everybody okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think like the result may vary or may not vary, but that's not really the point, right? Like you may come to the exact same result, but the way that you get there might be uh, the important part. In fact, what you said before we started filming was that you think process is probably the most important thing. Can you, can you just talk about that? What you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. We were going there at the same time, I think. So you're right. The result might be the same. The, the dollars in the bank account might be the same, or they might be, you know, nominally different by the end. Um, the the timeline might be similar, or might might be drastically different. All of these things don't they don't really make or break what it is. But how that, that process works, I think, really fundamentally does affect people um, in terms of how satisfied are they with the result. So. Um, I, I do believe that the process is, is more important than the result. And a huge part of that is just how our, okay, we, have a, we have two parents of children. Um, obviously, that was a little redundant of me to say, but we have two, two parents taking care of their children. And they need, to, they need to work together for the next 15 years. Or, and then they still have life together um, whenever they go through the milestones. So... If we set them up to, to fight tooth and nail and belittle each other, which frankly, most affidavits in the litigation system are, mm-hmm. like I said, I'm biased. Um, how does that play out for their, for their children, for their, for their own mental health, for their satisfaction as they go through the next, you know, four decades together? Um, that's why I believe the process is fundamental. If we can, if we can teach them or, or give them a pattern of relating through their disagreements, um, of which they'll likely have many, that doesn't just involve 
well, I'm going to bash you on the head if you don't give me what I want, then I think we've done them a, a greater service than just giving them good legal advice. And if we can, maybe we should. Yeah. Sort of kind of what I think a little bit about. <laughs> yeah. I, I really agree, Jeff. I think it gives people an opportunity to uh, speak to what their motivations and their interests are and to be heard and felt heard. And I don't think that can be understated in a process. And sometimes it doesn't feel that way coming out of litigation. You know, a, a judge might make their decision and make very sparing reference to reference to the facts that they considered. And um, uh, I don't know what Evan and Jeff, your experience in litigation had been, but often you come out of the courtroom and they'd say, but what about this? Or what about that? That was in the affidavit or that the judge didn't, you know, mention. And they might have had a, an objectively great outcome even from court, but the fact that that thing that was so important to them wasn't addressed um, still leaves an unsatisfied feeling for people. Um, so, yeah, I think that the process is is really important. And I think that identifies like almost a universal interest that people have that we, I don't even know that we ever talk about it, but it's, it's simply, well, maybe it's complexly, it's it, that need to be understood and need to be heard and need to be respected. Um, and I, I don't really think that a client's going to get that in front of a judge. Maybe that's way too big a blanket statement. I saw the expression there, and I think I said something wrong. But no, I don't think you said anything wrong. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I was just, I was just thinking about Stephen R. Covey. He talks about the in the the habit seek first to understand, then to be understood. He talks about giving people psychological air, and what he means by that is, you know, I know I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but but um, if you're drowning and you can't breathe. Nothing else matters. You just need air. And so he talks about when there's disputes between people that need to be heard is like needing air and you can't deal with the other things. You can't deal with what the other person wants to say um, until you're heard. And so um, that's why, that's what I, that's what I think might be, you know, I'm, I don't know, but I think that might be what's underlying what you've experienced, Heather. And I think we've all experienced where, there's like this just feeling of not quite dirty, but un just lack of satisfaction from the court process. Even when you win, as in you get everything that you're asking for, sometimes it can still feel like, you know, yeah, unsatisfactory. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's why. Given that didn't have a chance to tell, tell all of those things that are, are, bugging you right and not not necessarily not in an accusatory way but be be able to be heard be able to be understood and and feel like you've been listened to i don't think it really matters what that end result is going to be uh -huh. Uh -huh. It, it matters but not as much as they think yeah and i don't think that's to suggest or i don't mean to suggest that the court's not doing a good job at making decisions according to the law they generally are but when they're making decisions according to the law, they 
they are not necessarily making decisions according to um, using the same set of factors or interests or goals that pe the people bringing their questions before the court have. So there's a misalignment there, even if there's the same outcome, it's kind of, there's that, that disconnection then between the criteria that are being used and considered. Um, and then I think in collaborative law, then the law is one one input that we use to guide our decisions or to help conversations, but, um, and they have to be sort of reasonable, the outcomes have to be reasonable within the law, but I think it's really de-emphasized and, and it's not used as the, the measuring stick, it's one data point among all of the other data points that families bring to the process to evaluate options and solutions. And I think that's kind of where, uh, at least in my opinion, where the process is more satisfying in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I really agree with you on that. Um, the law becomes something to consider. One of the things to consider when we're making our decisions, and lots of times clients will say, yes, I understand that the law gives me this other thing, but that's not the thing that I want, right? I mean, just to backtrack slightly on, and I completely agree with you, Heather, I, I, I do have, I have no end of respect for, for judges and the justice system and, and the way that, that decisions are made. But I think the frustration that clients have is they're simply, they're not, they're not trained as lawyers, they're not trained as judges, and the, the clinical approach that we need to take in order to do, you know, just a pure lawyer job is I'm not interested in your motivation. I'm not interested in these things. I need the facts that are relevant to the test that's going to satisfy my argument before the judge and the judge is interested in the same thing. In fact, get there faster, please, Mr. Johnson, because you're wasting my time. Right. We don't have time to talk about these, you know, this really matters to my client. It's it's heartbreaking for a client to to realize, and most of them don't, but don't that doesn't matter, and that's 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 the objectiveness of the system. That's the strength of the system on some levels. Uh -huh. That's what makes it feel not right to a client. And so when we get to put it all in context and say, well, here's here's our legal authority. Here's our legal guidance. Um, and this is kind of where we at least start, you know, this, this is a baseline from which we can, we can depart. And then we get to take in all of these other factors and you can, you can make your decision that wildly diverts from the law if you uh -huh. want, if, if you, if you want to, as long as you understand the, the effect and the, and the implications of this, you, you can go, go ahead and do so. And I think that gives, gives that uh authority back to our clients um self-determination is a powerful motivator i think for a lot of people um and then they hopefully will feel more at peace with that result when they participate in that mm -hmm. as opposed to it being handed down yeah yeah absolutely so um maybe next i'd like to ask you a little bit about the process itself of collaborative law. So how does this process, how is this process so different from what we would do with the litigation lawyer if you were taking a matter to court? <laughs> what are you doing that, that makes it different? What does it look like? 
Yeah, um, kind of, I think kind of everything looks different a little bit, um, including those first conversations of, you know, what it is that, you know, what are we trying to solve? Um, how, how, what are we considering as we go about resolving these problems, right? Um, so maybe what I'm saying is that the process looks different from the very, very beginning because because the party's mindset changes or needs to change if the process is going to work as it's intended to. It needs to change from that first conversation with their lawyer um, throughout the entire thing. So kind of put the switch tracks. What's the thing? The switch on the train tracks? Pull the yeah. switch, get them moving on a completely different path right from the get-go. Um, practically speaking, we do we do all of the heavy lifting um, within context of conversations. So we'll, we'll gather to meet. We'll explore those underlying motivations together as a group. We'll discuss all of the facts that go into into their situation. Gather up all of the nitty gritty financial details. Find out about their family. Um, find out about where they're going in the next five or 10 years. Um, all of that kind of stuff is going to come right into the meeting itself. And it's not hidden. It's not, it's not um, secret information that we kind of hide in our back pocket to, to influence the other side as needed. Um, so I think once that is adopted, we're going to be open and transparent and honest with the other side. And we're going to talk not just about the law, but about all this other kind of, all these other um, foundational things. That conversation, it informs the conversation. That that four, five, six way conversation, there can be a lot of people in the room, um, in order to, to get to our result. So that's kind of how I see the, the fundamental process difference as opposed to let's make our plan um, let's let's uh, you know, identify the strongest parts of the facts that uh -huh. favor, favor the test that we're trying to meet for the law, and then let's let's try to convince our counterpart, um, with all due respect, that they're incorrect, that their position is weaker than ours. So, um, very different kind of mindset. Right. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think in a litigation file, I would typically have been meeting with a client, giving them some brief legal advice, figuring out, yeah, what the strategy is, where are their weaknesses, where's the strongest things, where are we going to have problems, start building up the affidavit and the information, um, and then um, trickle that information out as needed, maybe try and hide the weaknesses as much as possible, and then culminate sometime later in a trial where all of this stuff kind of comes out, right? And the judge hears that whole story and picture and makes a decision. Um, and I kind of feel like that funnel is tipped on its head in collaborative where we get all the facts and the information in front of us first all together and then look for a solution <laughs> uh, with all of that information in front of us. Um, I don't know if you agree that <laughs> that's kind of yeah. how it feels, but... Yeah. I think tipping it on its head is 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 kind of the right thought there. I mean, yeah, we gather everything right up front. We're not even talking about solutions. We're not talking about 
about answers to the questions. We're trying to identify all the questions first and all the different things. So yeah, it's very much backwards. Uh-huh. Um, don't talk about you know what what is our solution to this issue until we're at the very end. Um, it's, uh, no no client wants to hear this, but I've got a file that's been going on for I don't know two years now, and and we've been having fairly regular meetings. Like I said, no client wants to know this. Um, and now, now we're talking about solutions. Now we're talking about what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? What, what is support going to look like? What is spouse support going to look like? Um, How? And okay, we've got to divide up assets. We have corporations that, that are involved. We've got all these things. Um, what are we going to do with that? And this is after we've been, we've met a lot of times We've spent many hours together and not spinning our wheels, not, not arguing, not um, getting nowhere, but gathering up all of that background. Yeah. Yeah, It is very, a very different approach to the, to the surprises or I guess they're not surprises, but then to the, to the funnel method of litigation for sure. I guess it's a reverse funnel, isn't it? For the collaborative process, we open the funnel as wide as possible, whereas right. we kind of yeah. let it all come out and, and spread at the end. Yeah, that's um, so. The collaborative process essentially is everyone sitting down together to talk about the family talk about the questions that need to be answered and then working on answers to those questions. Yeah. I think that's, that's about it. Right. How are we going to our mutual um, concern with what our kids are going to do and how they're going to, how they're going to adjust to this? How are we going to solve that? Mm -hmm. Right. And that of course is going to lead into all kinds of practical questions. Um, how are we going to, how are we going to, um, as well as we can, try not to cut off our legs for our retirement? Um, how are we going to manage our, whatever we've accumulated together in a way that we're both going to be okay? I find that a lot of times when you kind of dig in past, past the anger and the hurt, most people, not all, but most people still have some level of concern for their partner. Um, they, they generally don't say, yeah, I would be happy if that person was in a gutter and died. Um, they, they, they seem to think they seem to want when you, when you dig in. Yeah. I, I think they deserve to retire as well at some point. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as soon as they hope, but that's mm-hmm. all. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah. I forget what we're talking about. <laughs> no, but I think, I think it just kind of illustrates something that, you know, I, it probably, it probably doesn't start out that way. I would imagine most of the time where both people are just like, I'm really concerned about the other person. And I want to make sure that they're, you know, it probably doesn't always start out like that. That might be something you have to dig down before you actually get there. And I think that's just a contrast with, um, we need everything right now. We're like the, you know, we need everything immediately, everything, right? Domino's kind of started the trend. I mean, they didn't start it, but you know, 30 minutes or it's free was their thing. Right. And now it's like, we don't even call each other anymore. It's by text. And if someone doesn't answer you right away, it's like, 
you know, we're upset about it. And it's all about instant gratification. And, and, you know, I find that with people who are getting divorced too, they want to be divorced yesterday. Um, Yeah. You know, I suppose that's possible for some situations, but the vast majority, you know, you've, if you've been living with each other and you've been married for any period of time, guess what? Your lives are totally intertwined and taking a chainsaw and just cutting it down the middle is not usually an effective way to deal with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, it leaves a lot, it leaves a lot to be desired in terms of, of, uh, you know, potential for, for, for any kind of civility going forward, I guess. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think the desire for speedy resolution is absolutely present. And, and that's part of the, uh, it's part of the paradigm shift. It's going to happen no matter what, um, if there's any level of complexity to, to the, to the, to the matter, right. Because the litigation is going to take who knows how long, um, in collaborative laws, it's, it's, it's not as fast as clients want. Um, but it's, sometimes faster despite my previous example um oh as if there's as if there's no litigation files that are two years old uh, yeah i know i know <laughs> right so, yeah so i mean yeah getting getting the the entire the entire thing to slow down I and mean, that's kind of one of the things about collaborative law it feels like we start very slow we can maybe talk about how we be, start off a file and I think clients are like, oh my goodness, what are we doing here? This is going to be a total waste of time. I think that's their their knee-jerk emotional reaction to when we actually finally sit down. Um, or in short order after we've discussed for the first time with our clients to sit down. Um, but the 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 mental paradigm shift is, yeah, we we're gonna take some time to sort out something that's this complicated. Right? It doesn't seem complicated at the time, just give me everything I want. They can go away, um, but it, it really actually is. So, um, but getting them, getting them to slow down enough so that we can move quickly. <laughs> kind um, of a, is that an oxymoron? I think it is. But, uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. Or, yeah, take take paradox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, take the time so that you can go quickly. <laughs> something there's something in there there's some sort of catchphrase in there there's there's a there's a military saying that uh slow is smooth smooth is fast there you go there you see that works well i like that i'm gonna gonna adopt that writing it down right now that's what that's what they that's what they preach to you when we're learning like uh uh weapons drills yeah. If, like the weapons drills they have to learn if you're going to go uh be actually fighting in war so like you know how quickly you can change your magazine and stuff like that is smooth as slow as smooth smooth as fast so huh. you try to rush it yeah no it's a, that's that's a wise that's a wise thing there i i did just write it down because i want to make sure i nice. i put that in my uh in my uh client preparation materials um because it's it's absolutely true right when we I think this, I think the same thing applies to a litigation file, right? But when we actually okay. gather enough information at the beginning, then we have a much, uh, we have a much more complete idea, which leads to that smoothness and leads to, you know, less backtracking, less changing of our minds and all kinds of stuff. Um, in, in collaborative law, we just make it that a real focus. We're going to spend all this time gathering, front loading the entire thing, the entire question with all of these non-results, um, style, uh, inquiries and, and meetings that, you know, we didn't decide anything today. 
no, we didn't because we're just, we're getting it all together and then we can just, we can move quickly, right? Yeah, I mean, it makes good sense that preparation is usually the, the most difficult part of any anything. Um, I, I used to have a tiling business and the actual laying the tile down was the easiest. That took, that, that was the fastest. The hardest was making sure the, the surface was ready to put the file on and the tile on and making sure that everything is marked out and cutting the tiles. All that took a long time. Actually slapping the tiles down was the fastest. Yeah. The easy part. Yeah, for sure. And it might also be important to point out the background of collaborative law because we, we've never actually talked about where this idea came from the word collaborative and lawyers have been fighting for a long, long time across the world to, to make this process available to people. And for the average person, they might be listening to this episode thinking, oh, a couple of Edmonton lawyers decided they wanted to work together and they called it collaborative. But it, it does have a meatier background than that. And I'm wondering if people ask you, uh, you lawyers, uh, you know, about the background of this process and why they should trust it. That's a good question. Thank you for proposing such a difficult question, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Heather could take this one. <laughs> Heather, <laughs> over. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I think I think actually the, the roots of it are actually remarkably similar to what you just suggested, Kim. That there was a couple lawyers in the town and said, uh -huh. "You know what? I think we could do this in a better way." Uh -huh. I'm pretty tired of the, you know, whatever Friday Friday evening flaming mail. I whatever. I don't know if they had email at the time. They probably did. It was origins are early two thousands, right? Two thousand two thousand one. Um, so email was a thing, right? Yeah, um, yeah, we're not that old yet. Um, but but that decision, you know what? We can do this with just let's not go to court. Let's do this, not that. And I don't, similar to what I said before, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if that was a lawyer, a lawyer interest where the lawyer said, I my professional life can't take this anymore, which is entirely plausible in my mind. Uh -huh. um, or if it was for the client. And I think it's one of those those happy coincidences where it happens to work better for both, right? Um, it it it's good for the the lawyer not to be um, knowing that there's probably a, a you know a flaming turd in the inbox at the end of the day on Friday, <laughs> um, something that's going to explode dramatically over the weekend. And it's your child's birthday and your anniversary, and it's a holiday and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it also serves the client because they're embarking on this wonderful process. <laughs> this, this thing that's going to, to uh, resolve, it's gonna change their process. Um, it's, going to, it's going to set them up for a, a hopefully a healthier transition. Um, so I can't remember who the counterpart was, but the origins of the process was a man named Stu Webb. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea, idea was so simple and revolutionary that it spawned his own he wrote a book and then started this collaborative group, which grew to an international, uh, an international movement. Um, and you know, some clients care, some people don't, um, that there's an international aspect of this, uh, international association, association of collaborative professionals, 
it's a mouthful to say. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a there's I don't think there's a national presence, but there's a provincial presence or a collaborative. Mm, what is it called? <laughs> uh, the ACSPE. That's Edmonton like Alberta. I know I'm terrible with that. Letters from the alphabet. Yeah. <laughs> J L K. Yeah, we have the we have the the Edmonton version, the Association of Collaborative Family Professionals of Edmonton. Yeah. And then we have the provincial one, which of course is escaping my my tiny little brain right now. So, um, but it is a highly organized um, uh, group of bodies, I guess, and we all we all adhere to the same ethical code, which is on top of our regular lawyer code, um, our our lawyer lawyer obligations. So it, it it introduces a whole new set to 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 interlay over top. That internally, um, to put over top of our existing uh, our existing ethical obligations, and uh, and also an understanding of just what does that mean? What does what does it mean to be a collaborative um, professional? Um, which gets into you know some of it is guidance on how to resolve the problems we talk about in some interest based way and all kinds of stuff. But all of this kind of this theory on what is the best way. To work together in a in a collaborative process, um, a non-adversarial, non-litigious process, process, most of the theory developed from that uh, international cooperation of professionals. We have all kinds of great authorities from great resources from across the world that we draw on to to make it better. I guess hopefully uh-huh. better. So I have a few questions, but before I ask them, Kim, did that answer your your urging for the your question about the background? Yeah, I think, the, you know, yeah, pe- I think my point was that it wasn't just something that was tossed together. This is a pretty, you know, pretty well-oiled machine that uh, a lot of people take a lot of pride in in learning and being a part of. Yeah. 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 A process that's been used successfully thousands, if not tens of thousands of times, I, I'm sure. Oh yeah, it's, it's it, it yeah, it's used around the world and and to largely, you know, often at least successful, uh-huh. <laughs> often successful. And I think uh-huh. part of it as well. I mean, it it did evolve. It, it's only twenty one years old or so. Um, it had it has to have evolved over the last two decades, and it will continue to evolve. Right? It's not. Yeah. I don't. We had Paulette DeKelver on talking about. Well, maybe we'll, did we talk about it when she was on last about uh, how it applies to civil hmm. civil uh-huh. sphere? So it's expanded from yeah. family law to civil as well. Yeah, yeah to me that's really exciting. I, I love to see that um, in the civil in the. I mean, there's some very natural places for it to exist in the civil litigation world, um, but to me, it's just exciting to see. Uh, it's a paradigm shift for for problem solvers. Right? Okay, so my my two questions, Jeff. Question number one. Even though you've got this higher code of conduct, what if you're in the process and the lawyer on the other side and their client on the other side are just not doing it well? They're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're kind of sewering everything. Does that happen? And if so, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yes, that happens. (laughs) 
um, that's that's the I think that is the most difficult scenario that we encounter, mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, sometimes it's fatal to the process. Mm -hmm. uh, so the the nuclear option, uh, which sometimes is the only one, is everybody backs out, retains new lawyers, retains you know we we've got there's everybody retains new lawyers and essentially starts over again which is okay we have we have no possible way to move forward we've got to start over and that's that's frankly that's kind of heartbreaking um when that's the only option um and i describe that aspect of it to my clients as as that's the double-edged sword of collaborative law that potential that we're going to get to a spot where there is no forward um, is impossible. That may happen. And there's a real consequence there. There, um, Financial time, emotional energy, it's a, that's a massive consequence. But at the same time, that consequence is enough, hopefully, to motivate everybody to work harder, to, to get back to the table, identify what the issues are, identify where we're breaking down here. Why cannot? Why can we not communicate here, um, and and keep it going? Uh, ideally, dealing with you know or addressing that problem of okay, yeah, everything's just getting sewered. We can't move forward. Ideally, there's enough professional respect to have an open conversation with the other lawyer. Mm -hmm. that's extremely difficult. I don't think I've ever had to do that um, in a way that, you know, I think that you're causing problems here. And I, and I, I haven't had, I haven't had a lawyer say that to me yet, but I could be coming. Um, but that would be the best case scenario, right? We're, we're solving the problem collaboratively. We have a, we have an impasse. We're going to treat that just like we treat, we can't agree over the matrimonial home or we can't agree on, you know, whatever parenting time um approach this impasse the same way hmm. but yes. if i can yeah oh, sorry um I, I was just going to add in there that one of the hallmarks of the process is that you, you know you'll have these four-way meetings so it'll be or five-way meetings with your financial neutral land or a, a psychologist a mental health specialist that'll come in you'll have those meetings as a group but then um each lawyer is going to debrief with their client, but each lawyer is, the lawyers are also going to debrief with an, with one another and with the other professionals in the team. And that's where um, we're meant to be troubleshooting those issues that are coming up in the process. So if it's a client that's not being forthcoming or is maybe having trouble with making that paradigm shift and um, expressing their positions in a more interest-based way, if they just keep coming and saying, I need 60 grand, <laughs> um, and they're having trouble expressing why or getting at those interests, what can we do as the professionals, as the guides of that process to help them bring those interests? 
interests to the table. Um, so there are feedback loops and mechanisms in the process to help address those kinds of problems. Um, there's also a participation agreement that are basically the rules of engagement for the process. So everybody agrees to be respectful, to have an open mind, to come prepared to discuss the issues, um, to provide information that's asked of them. Um, and sometimes, I, I don't know, Jeff, if you've done this before, but sometimes we've gone back to that document then and said, okay, we all made these commitments at the beginning. Are there things that we need to freshen ourselves up with here in the process so that we can keep going forward in a productive way and using our time wisely and getting to solutions. Um, if it's a lawyer in the process, that is a little more difficult and it can be a little more difficult. I mean, I think pie in the sky, best case scenario, we're all there because we all want to become increasingly better at our jobs with every file and that we're seeking feedback from the other lawyer um, as a standard practice. What went well? What do you think I could have done better? How did you feel when, um, you know, this happened or that happened and having an open conversation? Um, I know I don't always say the right thing at the right time or the right way, or sometimes you're surprised at someone's reaction about something. You hit a nerve that you didn't know you were going to. So part of that dialogue is theoretically part of the process and is there to catch those things. But sometimes you just can't get through that logjam. And I think Jeff is absolutely right. Sometimes it is just fatal and you, you can't get over some of those problems. But theoretically, there are tools there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that ability to bring in, it, it requires some openness still on, on everybody's part, but the ability to bring in a mental health professional or a financial expert to decode, you know, the, the confusing part of the, of, of whatever analysis we're doing that the other tools that we have and, um, and absolutely the debrief between lawyers that the open, you know, transparent communication between counsel, which is also, I think a, a unique aspect of, of the collaborative process. It's not a normal part of a litigation file. I don't think to discuss, oh, you know, my client's really being difficult here. Like that's not really something you're gonna pick up the phone and talk to your litigation counterpart um, about. So yeah, there's far more tools that have developed over time that let us get around those things. That's a, a good reminder there as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I still have my other question, but th this reminded me of another question that I had as well. So I still have two questions. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and the debriefing part, especially, so, we have a duty of confidentiality to our clients. And um, I know that that's different in the collaborative process. Can you just talk a little bit about how it's different and what the real impact is? Sure, yeah. Um, in the participation agreement, so baked into the entire principle of the process, is essentially the client giving permission to their lawyer to talk openly to the other lawyer about anything. Anything that's that's anything that's arising, factual, emotional, whatever it is. So the client gives express consent to share what would otherwise be confidential information. Now we do absolutely have our our mandate, if that's the right way to call it. We have our code of conduct from the law society that says we will keep our clients 
uh, information confidential. So the waiver is essential, but the client also has the authority at any time to revoke that waiver. And that's, that's coming from the law society. That's the deeper, um, more, I don't know if it's more fundamental, but that's our, our legal ethics, a profound principle of the legal ethics. Um, so client can at some point say, you can't tell the other lawyer this information. And that leads us to the difficult conundrum of, is this information that is vital to the process or is it, you know, your dinner party schedule in two weeks that you don't want them to know about for some reason. Um, so it leads us to that question. Why are you, what is it that we're keeping confidential? If it's the Cayman Islands bank account with $5 million in it, well, if you won't allow me to disclose that, to the other lawyer, I'm simply going to have to withdraw. So I guess that's the nuclear. I always go to the nuclear option. I don't know why. For a guy who says that, I don't really go there. I guess I go there. Um, so sometimes that that revocation is that a word of of the waiver on confidentiality that can derail the whole thing, right? And that's where conversations with a client, you know, this whether you're in collaborative or litigation, that Cayman Island bank account is going to come out. It needs mm -hmm. to. And could be in either situation. I can't act anymore if you're not going to allow that to be disclosed. Mm -hmm. um, but client has final say. And if they say you can't disclose them, you can't disclose them. Um, and that just might lead us to those difficult maneuvers just professionally. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I think it's kind of linked to the mindset, right? Like uh, of the paradigm shift that you, that you keep talking about in collaborative versus not collaborative, because in, in, if you're not in the collaborative process, then you're looking for, you know, there's advantages, there's strategic advantages that you may have that if everyone knew some fact would disappear or something like that. So Mm -hmm. in collaborative you don't want something like that yeah often often i find that that the, the type of information that we're sharing between counsel you know it's not usually some juicy fact that's going to change the change the breakdown of property it's usually no. my client is really struggling with this because because you know partner on the other side looked at them sideways and they felt offended and uh, I don't mean this to sound glib, right? I mean, it, it, there's there's a barrier that came into the room and being aware of it is going to help us avoid it or address it the next time. Right. Yeah. Those are usually the kinds of lawyer-lawyer communications we're having uh -huh. as opposed to, guess what? It, told me. It's not like my client's a total jerk. <laughs> no. 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 Yeah. No. My... <laughs> yeah. I hate my client. <laughs> <laughs> that would be or it's, conversation to have. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's kind of again one of those flip sides of of litigating. We're not strategizing, but we're planning, right? As well in those meetings. So um, spousal support is sort of a notoriously difficult conversation to have. So if Jeff and I had a file, we might get on the phone with one another before that next meeting, and we know spousal support is going to be the next conversation, and we'll come up with a plan together. So how do you think we should present this to the clients? Like what? It's going to be a way that's understandable to them. Like it's going to address their needs. Is this going to, 
you know, if we if we do this first, is this going to upset um, one of the parties? Is it going to put them off? Is it going to be overwhelming? So it's that kind of conversation that we're having. Um, very rarely is it, like Jeff said, some some really relevant fact or salient like detail. It's more um, big picture kind of of planning that we're doing together in those meetings. Yeah. yeah. So my my last question is um this sounds expensive what's the cost and i just want to preface that with if you're listening to this or watching this and you have that question in your mind and you're dreading the answer i think it's also important to ask well, what's the cost of not doing it yeah i think that's absolutely the relevant counter question right i mean yeah it's the dreaded cost question and it's, it shouldn't be dreaded because it's absolutely relevant to every client's situation. Um, but it is a really, really difficult one to answer um, because we generally don't know. Um, I think that the idea of being able to fix a price is, is fascinating and perhaps it can work in some situations. Um, there's going to be situations though where it's just a whole deck of wild cards okay. and you don't know you, apart from what's going to happen, you know, in that first meeting, um, you don't know what's going to happen after that. And is this going to be, is this going to take two months or is this going to take two years or, or somewhere in between? Um, so I always tell my, my clients because they always want to know, um, you know, I've had, I've had these things resolve in a month in the collaborative process and it costs less than $5,000. Um, I've had them go on for four years and you don't want to know how much it cost. Just, you don't. Uh -huh. cost, no, just, you don't want to know. Uh -huh. um, a, a rough guideline, which I don't really want to say this. <laughs> um, for a client, I think, to recognize is that each meeting is probably going to cost them in the range of around $2,000 per month. But we're going to move and we're going to, well, now we're just selling things. So we're going to get things done. Um, <laughs> the, the alternative, yeah, it, what, what is the, what's the alternative in litigation? What does it look like? There's always going to be those, those files that settle right away. And, yep, it's the same in, in collaborative. You might have one where one letter over where you send the draft agreement over in the, and your counterpart counsel says, let's just, that's fine. I have no problem with this. Or, you know, we need to make an adjustment here and you'd have a quick chat and say, yeah, that's fine. Okay. Uh -huh. we're, gonna we're done. Um, no problem. And we're still in that less than $5,000 range. Um, but you also have the ones where there's going to be the interim applications and the examinations on the affidavits. And there's going to be, um, you know, I don't know all the different steps that, that yeah. expert that, reports and valuations and, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or even just what is that interim app, app, uh, application for spouse support? What is that going to run you? Um, I, I, my prediction, since I don't do them very much, is that's probably going to cost you in the realm of ten to twenty thousand dollars, probably. Um, I don't know if that sounds way out there, but but it's going to be something that puts a dent in your wallet, and it's just one step. 
Yeah, I think, I think, uh, uh, thank you. I think that's a good answer. I think if you compare it to the court process, which is what you, uh, inevitably compare it to because it's, you're opting out of the court process for the duration. Um, unless you're going to do that court process on your own without a lawyer. Uh, yeah, you're looking at quite an expensive situation. If you avoid all the interim applications and you just go for a trial, then, uh, you know, might only be $20,000, but if, if it's a really complicated matter and there's pressing issues as well, then you're going to have interim applications and there's going to be all these other steps that you alluded to Jeff. And then, and then you'll end up at a trial and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's not unheard of for people to be spending 20 to 80,000 or more, mm -hmm. depending on how complicated their situation is on that litigation process. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. yeah, I've heard some experienced litigators, litigators talk about just how much the trial costs per day. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I want to quote the number because I can't recall, but it was in the five figures. It's not low. It's not a no. low number. Yeah. And you know, so a five-day trial, a three-day trial, a two-week trial, that can get pretty, yeah. Uh, yeah. pretty devastating. But I mean, I, I don't, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a reliable rule to say that collaborative law is always going to be cheaper than litigation. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, there's some hope there that it might be, um, but really the the major difference in my mind isn't the cost. Um, there, there may be on average a collaborative file costs less, um, but I, I don't even feel. Well, really no, good. Jeff, because you're, you're just thinking costs in the terms of dollars, but there's other costs. Absolutely. I think yeah. if, if price is equal, which I mean, it, maybe it is right. Litigation is, is expensive and uh, collaborative laws is also expensive. And so, um, some might be cheaper. Like if you were like, if you could somehow perform the scientific experiment, which is impossible, but let's say you could, where, you know, you take the exact same set of facts through each process and see which one's cheaper or more expensive, uh, then maybe we could actually figure that out, but we, but we can't. And I don't know of any statistics that compare the two, but if the cost is somewhat equal, what would you rather do? Yeah. Go to court and, and not be able to say anything because unless you're taking the stand in your trial, otherwise it's your lawyer doing all the talking um, and a judge who's going to hear it for a couple of days or a few hours or, or 20 minutes in the case of, uh, you know, one of those interim applications and then make a decision that's binding on you. That is the law for you. Or would you like to have a process where you get to participate and you get to say everything that you wanted to say and feel heard by everybody. Yeah, hundred percent. I think the non the non financial cost is just as relevant um, as the financial cost, or more sometimes. And you just highlighted that the process is the key, right? So it sounds like you're ready to join, Evan. Yeah, I would say so. I think that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> not, not quite yet, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. The, there's there's a lot more than just the result. There's a lot more than the than the financial cost at play here, and uh, and it's easy to lose sight of that in the heat when you're struggling for the psychological error, as you said before, right? Um, when when you can't breathe, you can't think about all those different things. Mm. Um, just looking for the quickest way to 
whatever it is. And, and that the knee jerk is litigation is the only way. I think one of the challenges we really face with this is um, the, that question of access to justice, because um, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. Not everyone's going to be able to afford to do collaborative law. That's just a fact. <laughs> and um, you know, some people are then just left to try and navigate because they're not going to be able to afford to have a lawyer represent them to go to a trial either. So then they're left on their own to try and navigate this mm-hmm. court process, which can be quite complicated. And um, it, it's also possible that the other person manages to have a lawyer and then you have, uh, you know, in a situation where you're going to a trial or something like that, that's a pretty significant um, uh imbalance yeah absolutely and i think that's ideally probably idealistically it's this type of process a collaborative process or something that looks very similar to it um is is part of that answer to how do we access justice for for the average person um that's maybe where the where the innovation still lies Uh, because yeah, it's absolutely fundamental, a fundamental problem. Um, if we can't afford to talk about it, if we can't afford to get to that solution, then then maybe you end up settling for something that you really don't want, and that leads to all kinds of problems down the road. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I've said this before on the podcast too: is that the other people don't need to know you're doing interest-based negotiation. You can, <laughs> you as a lawyer or you as a party can learn about it and use it even if someone else doesn't know, um, <laughs> doesn't know or isn't reciprocating. It's not always going to be as successful as in a collaborative atmosphere where you're both doing it deliberately. Um, but if you're finding out from your client what's important to them and understanding why one resolution or another resolution might or might not be acceptable to them, um, then that's helping them out and that's being more efficient and saving them money in a litigation or non-litigation atmosphere. Or if you're a self-represented litigant and you learn a little bit about interest-based negotiation and figure out what's important to you or what you think might be important to the other person, then you might be able to disrupt that logjam yourself, right? if you can kind of get down to those things. So is is it as effective as both people being involved? No, probably not. But, um, you know, you can do a little bit of that heavy lifting um, and make things run more efficiently. I hope that's my dream anyway. (laughs) I think you're, I think you're right, Heather. I mean, it's not, it's not going to be perfect because look how difficult it can be when both people agree to do it. Sometimes Mm -hmm. difficult, but that's how I met Catherine Spafford was, we were on the opposite sides of a file and I, um, I practiced interest-based negotiation at a four-way and I, I don't know that it was because of my skill or anything like that, but her, her client did like a 180 degree on it, the issue was parenting. And I really think it was just because, uh, it may be a number of factors, but in, I think it helped that she felt heard and I, we didn't try to come in there and convince her she's got to change the parenting arrangement. We, we just asked, I just came in and asked her questions and tried to understand her fears and her concerns about the parenting situation. And we didn't even finish. And she's like, yeah, I'm okay with changing it to this. Yeah. And so it can happen. It doesn't happen very often, but 
Um, you should become a judge, Heather, and then you could run your courtroom that way. <laughs> no, that's absolutely right, though, Evan. I mean, that's that is. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't belong. It's not proprietary to this process, right? I mean, it is a powerful way to to deal with people, and they don't expect it. clients don't expect to be, especially clients on the other side of a file. They don't expect to be treated like that. I know they think the other lawyer is always going to be a jerk because most of the time they are, especially if it's like questioning or something like that, right? And it just. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they're meant, uh, not that they're meant to be a jerk, but in the adversarial process, that's, that's part of the rule, right? Is to go in and challenge evidence and, right. and yeah, narrow down the issues, all of that stuff. Um, but that's not necessarily the best or most peacemaking way to a resolution for right. families. Right. Right. The things that we're asking about, don't even play into the law. Mm-hmm. They're not relevant, mm-hmm. a legal analysis point of view, but they're absolutely relevant to a resolution point of view. So. Mm. Yeah. Well, Kim, do you have anything you want to say? Any other questions that you have? I have one observation and one, uh, I, I know my role here is to kind of point out uh, legal slang that pops up in our conversation. So um, after my observation, I'll let, I'll let somebody uh, kind of give, give the skinny on what big C collaborative law is. But uh, my observation on um, collaborative lawyers is from being allowed to be in the room with a whole pile of them and, and listening to them talk and uh, sort through things. And I think the, the value there, there is a, a, a really important value that also isn't talked about. And that's the skill set of people who are practicing this day in and day out. It takes a lot of time to, to get good at conversations and keeping the energy in the room um, the way you want it to be to help resolve things. And I, I, I've been embarrassed on numerous occasions where I can tell my energy isn't matching the crowd. They're very calm. They um, can, can sit on something. They can uh, sit in a moment and and give space to a a thought. And I think it's just so valuable to have people who are trained in this um, and practicing this all the time to help, you know, help work through some of these issues. So I, that's my observation fly on the wall with collaborative lawyers. They, they're, they're important people who dedicate their time to something that uh, does change lives. So that's my bit. I'm just trying to picture Kim letting the mad dog come out. <laughs> well, like everyone else is calm and Kim's just losing it. <laughs> okay. Uh, the big C collaborative versus small C collaborative is just a way we kind of talk about big C being somebody who has done all the training. And, um, I think, I think you guys are accredited, right? Some kind of accreditation process. That's a big C collaborative process is when you're doing it officially through two collaborative law lawyers and, and with collaborative professionals like Kim small C is you're just not in that official collaborative law process for whatever reason, but you're still working, trying to work collaboratively to come to a resolution, maybe using some of the same skills and tools. Yeah. Am I right? Go ahead, Jeff. I was just going to say, generally, generally speaking, when I, when we talk about the small C collaborative process, what I expect 
is that we we have not taken court off the table. So, okay. and that's that is what makes the fundamental difference. I think okay. one of the things that makes the difference. So yes, absolutely, it's interest based negotiation. Hopefully, in every negotiation, um, every small C negotiation, but but if we have refused to to enter the big C process, um, it's it's likely because we don't want to take court off the table. A lot of C's in there. Yeah. I was going to say it's because it, it's big C if you've signed the participation agreement is what I would say. Um, but that's exactly what that is that Jeff has referred to is that it is that agreement signed by both lawyers and clients and um, any of the supporting professionals um, that acknowledges that they will not go to court. So I, I think that that's the big difference. Yeah. Yeah. The philosophical approach is the same. Mm -hmm. Okay, Heather, any other uh, big C or small C collaborative contract court comments? <laughs> no, I just think, I guess I, one really important piece I think that Jeff said before is that I don't think any of these processes is ever going to go as fast maybe or as efficiently as most um as most people would want them to. Um, but the process is important. And um, I think as Kim alluded to, tens of thousands of families have been through it. It is a trustworthy process that that works most of the time. So just to kind of hang in there and, um, and let it, uh, let it be slow so that it's smooth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, Jeff, anything uh, that you wanted to cover that we didn't cover? No, I don't believe so. I think that we've talked about most things quite thoroughly. Didn't you say, didn't you say in your email something like, I don't think we're going to last for, for like 40 minutes. <laughs> I, think I, guess, I guess we did. So. Yeah, I think we're at like an hour 15, maybe an hour 20. So you had a lot more to say than you thought you did. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I really appreciate, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on. And, um, you know, I, I know I speak for Heather and Kim as well, that we really appreciate it. And that it's been really good to hear your perspective and to learn more about the collaborative process, maybe inch me a little bit closer to, uh, taking those courses and joining the field. Yeah, I, I hope you do. So I appreciate very much the invite. It was and it's always good to nerd out about this stuff a little bit and, and have a good conversation about hopefully how we're, hopefully how we're helping clients. With all that. I, I feel like in some way this podcast is really geared around Kim convincing me to get different types of insurance and <laughs> convincing me to become a collaborative law lawyer. <laughs> we're getting there. That's right. Basically the point. Out of, out of love, out of nothing but love, not... Uh, <laughs> No other motive. No other motive. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for coming on, Jeff. This has been another episode of Access to Justice. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Any information in this video is general information only and is not, nor is it intended to be, legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. 
While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Malarick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Malarick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, RJFP, a subsidiary of Raymond James Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. When providing life insurance products, financial advisors are acting as insurance representatives of RJFP. Darkness of the Dales dissipates, declines because of he who turns.